please turn in your Bible or in the Pew Bible to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our passage this morning, as we continue through Philippians, is Philippians 3, 17 through 19. You can find this in the Pew Bible on page 981, but we will be doing something wonderful, turning the page after weeks and weeks of, of being in 981. We will turn to 982 this morning together. The memory verse for next week, Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning, is verse 17. And to kind of remind you of the context of this passage, I just want to give you a bit of the background before we read this morning's passage. In the preceding passage, Philippians 3, 12 through 16, Paul tells us that the one who belongs to Christ is to make it their greatest ambition, their goal, and their desire to know Christ and to become more like Christ. It's not only a wonderful description of the heart of a Christian, it is an invitation at At the same time, it's an exhortation for all of us who have turned from our sin and have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to press on, to strain forward, to keep on going, to to let that chorus that, that we just heard in that special song just keep on running through our heads. That's the theme. This it keep on going, keep running, press on, strain forward towards Christ. And it is with this in mind that that picture of, of Paul longing for more of Jesus, to experience the greatness of Christ and to become more like Christ, that, that the Holy Spirit leads Paul to write what we find in Philippians 3, 17 through 19. So this is God's word. Let's read it. <coughs> Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is God's word. May his people hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's go to Lord in prayer. God, as your people, it is so good for our hearts to proclaim your greatness and your glory. Every single time we think of you, we pray to you. You are awesome. There is no one like you. Having won our hearts, having brought us to life so that we see things more clearly, we recognize that you are awesome. You are glorious. You are good. You are perfect. You are our greatest delight. You are the treasure of the gospel. We get to be your people through the blood-bought work of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Father, we confess that so often we forget this reality, this, this wonderful truth about who you are and who we are because of your great work in the gospel. We're so thankful for your patience and your mercy, not just towards those who are outside still of your presence, but those who are in your presence through the cross. Thank you, Father, for your continued work in our lives. And as we come to this text, we want it to change us. As your people, ultimately our hearts desire to submit to your word. Yes, there are these wars that go on in our hearts. We want at some level, to be our own ruler, our own captain, and yet, because of the Spirit's work in our hearts, we realize that you're better, you're greater. What you say is so much truer than anything else that anyone else could say or that we could say. Father, we ask that that you would be with, that you would strengthen those who we love, who are in the hospital, who are facing great battles physically. Of course, we pray that they would be healed, submitting to your will for their lives. And yet, even more, we pray that you would sustain our brothers and sisters' faith, that you would increase their awareness of, of you in their lives and how you're with them, how you will not abandon them, that the gospel would be even sweeter and greater in light of their present earthly struggles. 
And we pray, Father, for those family members, those neighbors, those friends who, who are going through trials who do not know you, that you would use these difficulties to bring them to Jesus, that they would see their need for Christ and trust in him. And Father, now as we come to this text, we pray for help. I need your help to preach this passage. Those who hear this sermon need your help by your Spirit to apply it to their lives. So Father, help us so that we would obey it and enjoy it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a youth pastor, there was this boy in our youth group who would follow me around every single week. It was as if the words that Ruth said to Naomi were his personal mission, which at the time happened to be lyrics in one of Chris Tomlin's most popular, I think it's still one of his most popular worship songs. You know, many of you know it. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. Well, that became this boy's mission statement for me, his personal agenda. This young man would go where I went, stay where I stayed, and would follow me Literally. I mean, he would take that command or that song or whatever, and he would just make it his thing at youth group. Before youth group would begin, he'd sneak his way into a conversation that I was having with somebody. All of a sudden, there he would be, face popping in, in the crowd and start talking, and, and then he would follow me around before youth group would begin, at least officially. Youth group starts as soon as the first kid's there, but, but it, you know, before it would officially start, the songs would be sung and the, the lesson would be taught. And so as, as I would pick up on this, you know, he, he, I'd start to play games with him. I'd start to walk really quickly in circles. And then he'd realize that I was on to his, his following me around. I, I would start to, we, we moved youth group at that time down into the sanctuary because there were too many kids going through puberty that weren't wearing deodorant up in Narwald Hall. And so we decided just for the safety of the adults' nostrils, we would move into here. And, and so we would come in here and I, I'd see him and I'd try and make my way towards the, the sanctuary doors and I'd sneak out one, and then I'd sneak back into it, and there he'd be, just right on my, on my tails, following me around. I mean, this kid was, was like a, a three-year-old at a playground in dirt. You know, just, he was on me like that. You just you couldn't get him off me. He was right there all the time. But he wouldn't just follow me. He would imitate me. He would ask other youth about the relationship with Christ. He'd ask me to pray with him for his family and his friends, he would ask for opportunities to teach and to disciple others. He, he kind of became an unofficial intern in the youth ministry. He was my go-to guy with our middle school youth group. He'd talk about scripture and how it applied to his life. I, I'd try and preach my heart out to a bunch of kids, half of whom just came because some cute girl or some cute boy came and they wanted to be around them and, and see them and, and play some dodgeball or whatever. It, and yet, throughout all that, all that, he would come up and, and share how that, that passage was, was directly for him and how it applied to his own life. As he grew older and older, he began to physically follow me less and less. But his love for Christ grew and grew, and he became a youth pastor. Now, I can't take credit for either his love for Christ or for him being a pastor but I, I do believe that God used, and at that, that time was especially a growing season for me, God used me uniquely in his life to help him follow Christ. And ultimately, God was glorified greatly in this young man's life. This morning's passage calls for Christians to be something like that boy to seek to be imitators of others, to humble ourselves and look for people to act like and walk like. And it makes sense that this would flow out of what Paul wrote before in the previous passage. Remember, he's urged Christians to pursue growth in Christ. He wants them to grow. Look to Jesus. Strain forward. Press on in the midst of all that you're going through, whether it be persecution or hardship or suffering. Keep on going. And now he says, look for people that you can follow as you do that. Other people who are further along the road, who have been walking with Christ longer, make sure that you follow those people as you pursue Christ-likeness. Now, in order to help us know who we should follow, Paul sets before us two groups of people. 
The first group is described in verse 17, and they are those that we should imitate and follow as our examples. The second group described in verses 18 and 19 are those that we must be sure that we do not follow and are nothing like. Notice, friends, that Paul divides everyone that we might follow into only one of two groups, one of two categories, those we should imitate and those we should avoid. There's not a middle third group that that may or may not be good to follow that comes with, with something like a warning label that reads, follow at your own risk or imitate with caution. But we love options, don't we? It's, it's part of, I, I don't think it's just a Western culture thing. It's just part of us as humans. You know, like God has given us all this good stuff. You know, so, so we want lots of options when it comes to picking and putting things into categories. Especially, we, we, I mean, we want more than two normally. Imagine going to a restaurant. Getting excited to go out, maybe with your spouse or, or a friend, you know, and, and sitting down, the, the waiter, the waitress puts you at the table, gives you the, the menu, and you open it up, and you only see two options in the menu a side salad and meatloaf. Two? I mean, even if you like a side salad and meatloaf, you, you probably start to look under the table and wonder where the rest of the menu went. Is it underneath somewhere? Who, who put this menu together? And I think you'd be justified in that. I mean, you, you go to a restaurant, you want more. When it comes to preferences, whether it be food or sports or hobbies or whatever, colors, you know, where you want to live, what, all that stuff, you know, that's fine. There are lots of different options. Options are good. I love options when it comes to those things. But when it comes to people that we are to, to be following, there are only two groups Two categories, two options. And in this passage, Paul not only tells us to pick the right people, but he helps us identify who it is that we should be following. In verse 17, Paul tells us who we are to follow. He writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. This first group then, the ones that we are to imitate as Christians, is made up of Paul and those who are like him. Paul is calling for Christians to, to be like him, to copy him. He says that, that we're to watch him and those who are like him so that we would be like Paul. He, he says, be like me. For some of us, that seems a little odd. That, that might even come across as, as being proud. Who, who says, be like me? Is Paul tooting his own horn? Is he being a bit like the football player who scores the touchdown or or sacks the quarterback, gets up, does their little thing that they've choreographed, you know, they've worked it out, all that, and then after that, you know, points to to the name on the back of their jersey, their own name. Look at me. Be like me, young kids. Don't you want to be like me? That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul was not an arrogant man. Remember, he just confessed in verse 12 that he was not perfect yet and that he wouldn't be until Christ returns and he's raised from the grave and glorified. And so he's continuing to pursue sanctification in Christ. He's he's pressing on. He's straining forward. Someone who thinks that they're perfect wouldn't say that. So that's not Paul. He's not being arrogant here. But still, most of us would be uncomfortable telling other people what Paul tells us to do in this passage, especially when it comes to following Christ. I mean, we might say, well, he's an apostle, so he's in a different category. But but listen, he, he says those who are like me. Other people, yes, the other apostles, but those who are like Paul, he commends to us to follow. Now, it might be that we're uncomfortable with something like this, when it's applied to ourselves because of humility. We just don't think that we're good enough examples for other people to follow. That could be the case, all right? However, I think more often than not, that's not the case. The case is that, that it's false humility, which is really pride. See, we don't want anybody following us because then we're responsible for their growth in Christ, We'd rather just kind of live by that motto that is, you know, the, the, the mantra of so many in individualistic societies. You worry about you, and I'll worry about me. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. You believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. It's pluralism, and it's infiltrated the church, and we've often adopted this mindset when it comes to the Christian life. No, 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 no. Freedom. Freedom of religion. Yeah. 
Praise God, so that you can speak into people's lives, not so that you can shrink back and say, you do your thing and I'll do mine. No, it's, yeah, let me help you walk with Christ and grow as a Christian. This individualistic approach to life works well in our own minds in a, in, if we're following the culture, but it does not fit with the commands of Scripture. And Christian, there's something that dismantles this mindset very quickly, and it's called the Great Commission. God gave it to the entire church. And remember, it's not a call to make conversions. Only God really, truly makes conversions. We don't bring somebody who's spiritually dead to life. We are messengers, proclaimers. We're like the the news anchor who says, you know what happened? God has done this great thing through his son. He sent Jesus to atone for our sin. And Jesus lived a perfect life, obedient, so that he qualified to atone for our sins. And not just qualified, but he is God himself, so he can pay for all of our sins. And because of that, he went to the cross to do that, to atone for our sins. And then after he died, God raised him from the grave so that all who trust in him would have new life. That's what we're just telling people that message. We're not bringing people to life. We don't make conversions. God makes conversions. What are we called to do? Make disciples. Make disciples. Which means we're going to have to help other people follow Christ. We're going to have to encourage people to follow us to some degree or another. And so Paul knows that despite his failures, his imperfections, and all of his weaknesses, he wants to serve the Lord. He's a man on fire for Christ. And he desires for Christians not just to come to Christ. Oh, he wants Christians to come to Christ, but he wants them to mature in Christ. And this must be the same longing desire that we have as Christians. We don't want to just pack rooms full of people so they hear the gospel and pray a prayer and then go on living however they want to live and follow the world. No, we want God to save them, add them to his church. Yes, universal, but then the local church where they grow and pursue discipleship in community under the authority of God's word in a healthy local church where they can grow for the rest of their lives and their families and their friends and their neighbors can be folded into the lives of other Christians. And yet some of us have flipped it. We, we think it's all about conversions and we set aside discipleship. But I'm telling you, the Bible calls us to make disciples, not conversions, because we can't. And here in this passage, Paul puts a target on his back, and he tells other Christians, hey, I'm not perfect, but aim at me. Be like me and all those who are like me. Paul's call to imitate him is weighty and it's wonderful. And here's why it's weighty, because it's hard. When you step out and you say, you know what, I'm following Christ. I know that glory's coming. I will not be perfect until the day of resurrection when after Christ returns and all is done Everything is finished, whatever your eschatology is. After that day, when the bodily resurrection happens, that's when I'll be perfect. So in the meantime, I'm pursuing Christ. And anybody who God, who God brings into my life that I can help, help them follow Christ, well then, come on, let's go. Come and follow me. Yet that's not the motto or the, 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 the mission that so many of us have undertaken. But it's, it's weighty because it's hard, and not only that, but because Paul and all those who lead others are going to give an account for how they lead. They're responsible for, for other people's discipleship as they begin to follow them, if they lead them astray, if they, if they teach them false teachings and point them away from Christ. They're going to be held accountable for that. So it's weighty. It's weighty. And yet it's wonderful because it displays one's love for Christ and one's love for others. To just leave people, to, uh, to just pluralism, you know, you do your thing, my, I do my thing, that's not loving. God calls us to invest in other people, to help them not just understand the gospel, but follow Christ. And so to do that is so unloving, church. No, step out and say, I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm, I'm probably going to at times kind of steer you off, but I, 
but I'm, I'm going to try not to, and I know with God's grace, and as, as we submit to Christ and his word, as the Bible is our authority, not our feelings or emotions or some false teaching over there that's really popular, as the Bible guides us, I, I, I'm trusting that God's going to use it for your good. That's loving, and that's honoring Christ's command to make disciples. Now, if you're still struggling with Paul's words here about himself, I mean, he starts at, you know, who should you follow? Me. Follow me. If you're still struggling with that, well, I believe that what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:1 1, can help make Philippians 3:17 crystal clear. There Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, "Be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Paul says, "Imitate me because I'm imitating Christ." And and that's why he can humbly but confidently say, "Be like me." He's pursuing Jesus. So anybody that is pursuing to, to live like and to model their lives after Paul, well, they're, they're going to, to be following Jesus. See, it's not about becoming more like Paul. It's about becoming more like Jesus. Paul, along with all those who were like him then and all those who are like him now, are trustworthy guides for those who are traveling the narrow path. They're real flesh and blood examples, gifts to other Christians so that we would see what it looks like to follow Jesus today, right now, in our culture, in America, or in whatever country God puts us in. They're tools in God's hand to help Christians grow in godliness. So I would commend to you that a good name for those that we are to follow would simply be those who follow Christ. Follow those who follow Christ. Every passage has some application for us. And here's one of them in this passage. Christian, make sure that you are following those who are following Christ. Now, this seems very simple, but how can you really know? I mean, there's so many people who profess to follow Christ. Very charismatic, and I don't just mean theologically, I mean like personality-wise. They're, they're very intriguing and interesting and intelligent and they say they're Christians. It amazes me every time Barna or whatever research church Christian or religion research group puts out statistics. I, it just baffles me, you know, how, how they can, I, I really do not trust the stats, but, but for whatever they're, you know, they're, they're coming up with this number and, and here's what it, it's saying, that, that still there's this high number I think it's in the 80 percentile of, of people in America that claim to be Christians. So how will we know? What will they look like? How will they walk? Later when Paul addresses those who we should not follow and should avoid, should not imitate, he gives us these marks of, of them. Uh, how, how we can identify what they look like, how they walk. But here he doesn't. But I believe that Paul has already written so much about himself and others in Philippians that are marks of what we should look for. They will help us identify those who we should follow. And, and there are many of them in Philippians. However, I just want to put before you three that, that parallel the marks of those that we should not follow from verses 18 and 19. So they're, they're somewhat, not completely or entirely, but they're, they're kind of opposites of of the marks that Paul gives, a, gives us in, in the later verses of those who we should not follow. First, and this is the most important mark, if they don't have this mark, then, then the rest of the marks don't matter. This is, this is central. Those that we should imitate get the gospel right. They, they get the gospel right. Paul says those we should not follow are enemies of the cross. The cross is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. If you get the cross wrong, well, you will get the gospel wrong. When I was in college and, and starting in youth ministry, there was a pastor who was questioning every historic Christian doctrine there was. And, and it was at the same time where kind of postmodernism had made its way into the church and this movement that didn't want to be named because that's kind of postmodernism. Don't give me a title. That, you know, that that's, that's like the worst thing you could do is give me a label. Well, well this pastor who was questioning every historic doctrine set his sight right on the cross. And he ended up redefining and setting aside historic Christian teaching, doctrine, especially the atonement. He saw it as, and other, 
other so-called Christians who I would tell you and, and argue and, and, and I, would, I would die on this hill, are not Christians if they do this, have denied throughout centuries. His view was that the atonement to view the cross as God pouring out his wrath on his son as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us is divine child abuse. It's to be set aside. It's barbaric. It's disgusting. And nobody, especially modern people, can embrace that message. The cross. This pastor who had a, a large evangelical following beyond his megachurch, I mean, these are Bible-believing Christians, that pastor is no longer a pastor, but something like a life coach and traveling speaker who has abandoned biblical Christianity for universalism. All roads ultimately lead to God. (laughs) Doesn't matter which road you take, every path is ultimately the same path. The wide path is the narrow path. And the whole time he was saying and, and questioning. I mean, he would just ask questions. Why this? Why this? Why this? No, never an answer. And then he would kind of shrink back. I'm just asking questions. Just asking questions. And faithful, godly, not just pastors and theologians were saying, wait a second. Where are you going with this? And the whole time, people were embracing, saying, he's just asking questions. What's wrong with the question? Saying, he's going somewhere wrong. He's, he's denying, ultimately, the cross. And people embrace that, and some have followed him out of Christianity into universalism. But those who we are to imitate do not trust in their works to justify them. They get the cross. They understand that it is only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice in all of its gross, disgusting reality. That's their only hope for themselves. And so they've embraced that reality. They get the cross. They understand that that their hope is not within themselves, it's not in their mind, it's not in their ability to figure God out, it's only in what God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul states earlier in the chapter, his confidence is that he has been found in Christ. He's set aside all of his religious accolades, all of his religious ancestry, and he said, it's all rubbish. My confidence is in Christ, in being found in Christ having a righteousness not of his own, but that which comes through faith in Christ and depends on faith. If they don't get that, that central truth of the cross, well then, brother, sister in Christ, be, be very careful. Of course, do not follow them. Don't imitate them. They've got to get the gospel right. They've got to understand the cross in all of its glory, in all of its offensive nature. The gospel has always offended non-Christians. It's good news, but not to those who reject God. It's good news for those who know that they need a Savior. Those who know that they are in desperate need of God to save them. A second mark of those that we are to follow is that they are living for Christ. Right now, in this moment, they're living for Christ. That's their agenda. Now again, this doesn't mean that they're, they're going to be perfect, that they're going to become a monk or, a, or whatever, you know, a Protestant version of those things and just kind of go off and just become mystical. It doesn't mean necessarily that they are in full-time ministry or that they are famous. It means that they see the purpose of their lives as being for Christ. Now we can see that this was certainly true of Paul in passages like Philippians 1, 21 and 22. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We've hit that over and over again because it's so beautiful. Summary of, of Paul's mission statement, his life verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. But we also see this in other men that Paul is commended to the Philippians, like Timothy and Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2.21, Paul says that Timothy was a man who did not seek his own interests, but those of Jesus Christ. I love that. That's what you got to look for in people that you're going to follow. Are, are they interested in, in worldly things? Are they interested in, in in their own selfish ambition? Or are they interested in what Jesus is interested in? And in Philippians 2.30, Paul says that Epaphroditus risked 
his life and nearly died for the work of Christ. Remember what he did. He left Philippi with this bundle of, of an offering and either a letter or uh, prepared to give a verbal update to Paul. He was a mailman for Christ. He risked his life and, and Paul commends him and says he nearly died for the work of Christ. See, there are so many different ways that somebody could be living for Christ. From the widow who sets aside time and money to encourage and come, a, come alongside younger Christians to the man who spends his time cleaning the church and the bathrooms, to the parents of children who continue to pray for and lovingly share Christ with their rebellious children, whether they be, they be adult children who have, who have maybe made some profession early on and are not walking with Christ, or, or those parents who are in the, the throes of, of the difficulty of, of parenting young children who, who at times give, give them hope. They, they seem to get the gospel and the next day they... They, they get punching their brother or whatever it is. You know, these types of people are those that we should be looking to imitate. Living for Christ involves evangelism, discipleship, acts of service, and giving sacrificially of one's time and energy and resources for the good of others with this goal to glorify Christ. They're not giving so that they can get. They're giving because they see their very lives as a resource to display the worth of Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing. They're not saying, look at me, look at me, how great I am. They're saying, look at me, look at me. I found the secret to life. It's meant to be lived for Christ. It's all about Jesus. Those who bear this mark do what they do because they know Jesus is worth living for. Though many more marks could be given, a third and final mark that I'd like to give you of those that we're to imitate is this, and I love it. Their joy is in the Lord. It, it's, it's kind of one of those, like, what? How, how does that show? I mean, because there's this false joy, and people can just kind of, especially with kind of this positive, watered-down, evangelifish kind of smorgasbord of Christianity that just says, think happy thoughts. You know, it's all good. You know, just just... Just be cool with just whatever happens. And that's not the joy that I'm talking about. The joy that I'm talking about we see in, in Paul's heart throughout the letter. We've seen it. In Philippians 1.4, while in prison, struggling, Paul can say this. He is praying for the Philippians with joy. He is physically struggling. He's burdened. He, he's feeling all the pressures. He's worried and concerned and praying for all the churches. And yet he gets this report back that things are going overall pretty good in Philippi. And he prays with joy. His circumstance is not great. <laughs> but he has joy because his joy is in Christ. In Philippians 1.18, though some were preaching Christ in order to hurt Paul, they saw it as a way to attack attack Paul, to put him in his place. They're, they're going around proclaiming Christ. Paul says that he could rejoice because Christ was being proclaimed. They're trying to, to make him look stupid because here he is in jail and they're proclaiming Christ and they think they're gathering all these followers and Paul says, I don't care. I don't care because my Savior, Jesus Christ, is being proclaimed through their sinful, fallen Maybe unsaved lips. My joy is in the Lord. In 2.7, Paul says that though he was experiencing suffering, he was glad and rejoicing. Those who we are to imitate have a joy that can't be taken away because they are convinced that the gospel is true. Their joy does not come from escaping reality. It's not this kind of leaving the body and just pretending like it's just, they're just gone, whatever. No, they feel it. They, they know the effects of sin. They hate death, but they know the gospel is true. They believe things like what Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. They get that. They know that. 
Nothing can separate them from the love of God. They get it. And so even in the midst of great difficulty, even with tears and, and struggle, there is joy in their heart. And that is the type of person that you, Christian, are to imitate, to be like. It's sweet. It's wonderful. And it's who we should follow. Well, this brings us to consider those that Paul warns us to avoid. This group Paul calls in verse 18, enemies of the cross. So he gives them a name. These people that you're to avoid are enemies of the cross. Now, before we look more at what identifies them to us, it's important that we notice Paul's pastoral heart in the passage because it could very easily be another mark of somebody that we should follow. Paul gets emotional about those who are enemies of the cross to the point that he weeps. He's crying as he's either dictating these words or he's writing them. There are two possible reasons for these tears. One is that his tears are flowing out of concern for the harm that those in this group might cause to the Philippian church. So he's burdened for the church. Another possible reason for his tears is out of his concern over the suffering that those in this group will experience unless they repent. Their end is destruction, God's wrath, eternal punishment, hell. I think that Paul is weeping for both of these reasons. Those who we are to imitate find no joy in the judgment of the wicked. They know that if it were not for God's sovereign, saving grace, they would be among the wicked. So, so they don't find joy in judgment. And at the same time, those who we are to imitate, they get really upset when people mess with Christ's church. They know how precious the church is. Christ bought his bride with his blood. So that is why Paul is weeping here. They're headed towards destruction, eternal damnation. God's going to righteously pour out his wrath for all of eternity in hell on these people. And that causes Paul to weep. And at the same time, these people could cause the Philippian church great harm. And he loves the church because Christ purchased the church with his own blood. So what then are the marks of those who are enemies of the cross? There's a great benefit here in Paul's description. It's, it's kind of vague. It's very general. And, and what this does is it allows these marks to apply both to the legalist, who thinks that they can be righteous by keeping the law, the, the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. And the, the, these marks will also apply to the antinomian. That is someone who rejects God's law completely, says, hey, we're saved so we can live how we want. So they seem to be on opposite spectrums, but they, they really are wrong on both ends. They get God's law wrong, both of them. And these marks will apply to both of them. The first is that their God is their belly. This means more than they love food, which might be a mark of many of us, so we're thankful that this is not their, their mark. This is not what Paul is getting at. It means that they are driven by their physical passions and sinful appetites. They see no greater authority than themselves. And so whatever feels right, whatever will gratify their flesh, they will pursue it. They willingly give in to their sinful desires. They fully run with YOLO. You only live once. That, that, I mean, that is, I mean, I know sometimes people say that in like a, hey, God has only given us one life. We've got to pursue Christ. And you can kind of Christianize that. But, but the gist of that saying is, do what feels good. Be you. Do whatever you want to do. You only live once. Try everything. God says, don't try everything. That leads to destruction. These people say, oh yeah, I'll try everything. Whatever feels good, I'm going to do it. Whether that be greed, power, sexual immorality, those who are enemies of the cross, they do not desire to know Christ and become more like him. You know what they desire? They want to be Christ and they want to be worshipped. Now, they won't come out and say this. Most of them, some of them will. There's some who will say, yep, I, that's what I want. I'm living for the moment. The one who dies with the most toys wins type of mentality. There's a few of them who I think they just want attention, but most will not come out and say it. It will be seen in that they will not, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his commentary, live out a lifestyle which involves following Christ in self-denying devotion to God and love for others, end quote. Do you get it? They're not going to make sacrifices for Christ, really. 
They're not going to do that. They're not going to give up things to, to magnify Jesus' worth in the world. They're not going to truly do things for others with the right intentions. Because the one whose God is their belly is committed to indulging in whatever satisfies their body and not indulging in the one that can save their soul. A second mark of those who we must not follow is that they glory in their shame. This means that they exalt things and actions that they should be ashamed of. They not only give themselves over to sin, they justify themselves. Now this one would almost be silly if it wasn't so serious and if it wasn't going on especially. It's always been going on as you'll see, but especially now in today's culture in our own country. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this in Isaiah 5.20, saying, These people call evil good and good evil. Brothers and sisters, this has happened in the past. Isaiah 5.20. It's happening today and it will happen in the future. There will always be people who claim to speak on behalf of God that say the exact opposite of what God's word says. They, they will call good what God calls evil and argue based on their own moral code that sin is holy, and that which is holy is sin. Consider some of these things. Those who teach that God is indifferent or even pleased with people ending a life created in his image while it's in the womb. They, they call it a right. They, they think that it is good, but it is a breaking of God's law, and the creator of life calls it murder. Praise God for the gospel, because those who have gone this way can be forgiven, even of this. It is one of the joys. The gospel is that good that it can even forgive this. But there are people who have embraced this as good, as if God is pleased with it. There are others who have made greed, selfishness, and being unconcerned with those suffering as a virtuous and an admirable thing. They call it being frugal or wise stewardship. As if the God who calls his people to pray for those who are suffering and share with those in need who came to die for sinners is somehow pleased with a heart response to that like that in suffering. It doesn't matter if you're just walking by the news and you hear about the recent bombing in Syria. Your heart as a Christian should break for those experiencing this conflict. I'm not saying that, that all of us are to go to Syria and become, you know, doctors or, or help, you know, in, in some physical manner, but, but at least there should be this heart response of, oh, I feel for those people. God, bring the gospel, bring people there to help with the physical needs, but also the spiritual needs. And yet people, under the guise of, of good stewardship, are just setting those things aside. Or those who say that love is love, no matter who it's between, even if that love contradicts the God who is love and opposes such a supposed love and calls that love sin. Do you see? It's crazy. It doesn't even make logical sense. And yet, somehow, people have embraced these things. Then there are those who teach others to hate, calling it nationalism or some other name when it's just racism or something like that. It's just sin. And as an exclamation point on their glorying in their shame, they throw parades and parties to celebrate these acts or beliefs that God calls sinful. And there's Christians there rejoicing in what God says will lead to destruction. Even some professing Christians try to get around the plain reading of Scripture. Listen, God has not given us a complicated book. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to give you a book that's really hard to understand. You try and figure it out. You're going to need to get a PhD to understand this. You're going to need to know every Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic word to understand what it really means. Sure, can you get more sometimes by studying the original languages? Yes. You can get the semantic range. Well, this, this could and this, this also means this and this aspect, you know, as you translate from it. Yes, but, but it's simple. It's clear. You don't have to be extremely intelligent. In fact, you can be a young child, Jesus says, and understand what God is saying through his word. And yet people professing to be Christians twist the scriptures. They, they, they try to make Christianity fit with the ever-changing culture, believing that it's the only way to save Christianity in the West and in the world. But in the end, here's what's happening. They're confusing the gospel. 
not only for this generation, but for future generations. It already happened. It's, it's called the movement of Protestant liberalism. It happened in denominations, Lutheran and Methodist and Baptist groups and Presbyterian. They all split. And the bigger ones went to, to, to this and the smaller ones held to the, the scriptures. And now it's happening again in church by church by church. People are confusing the gospel, denying the authority of God's word and putting forth a distorted man-centered view of God. They're becoming enemies of the cross. Friends, it doesn't matter if they have a BS in Bible, a master's in theology, or a PhD in Greek. If they glory in their shame, if they twist the scriptures to, to do these things, don't follow them. It doesn't matter how many books they've written. It doesn't matter who endorses the back of their books. They're enemies of the cross. Now, a final mark Paul gives of those who are enemies of the cross is that their minds are set on earthly things. I mean, this really is behind all of it, isn't it? Theologian J. Alec Mateer explains it this way. At the very center of their being, where their life finds its direction, where attitudes and tendencies are fashioned which subsequently influence their decisions and govern likes and dislikes, at this vital center, the world and its ways are the whole object of attention. The mind is set upon earth. If we were to be able to open up their mind and see what's inside, it would be like more, more, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more fame, more sex, more pornography, whatever. More, more, more of that. If we could, we can't, but that's what's going on. It's all driven by the world. The mind that is set on earthly things is described in detail in Romans 1, 18 through 32. There Paul describes it as, as a mind that suppresses the truth as a mind that is futile in thinking, as a mind that has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The mind that is set on earthly things is in rebellion against God. And though this is easy to see in those who openly reject Christ as Lord and Savior, it's important that we look closer at those that we are seeking to imitate, those that we are following to make sure that they have not set their minds on earthly things. Because church, there are always going to be preachers, teachers, politicians, and others whose ambition is to acquire wealth and store up treasures on earth. There are always going to be preachers, teachers, and politicians who do this. They're motivated by greed, by selfishness. They have a hidden agenda, and it's, and it's so easy to see in the prosperity preachers, the, the word of faith preachers, the politicians, most of them it's easy to see in. But, but it's harder to see. It's more subtle than so many others. Those who we follow are to be men and women who are not building their kingdom, their brand, their fame, but are committed to proclaiming the gospel, laying down their lives, and making much of Jesus Christ. They talk about Jesus over and over and over again. They, I, I think of Spurgeon's quote about a Puritan. They bleed, be blind. They, they bleed the scriptures. They're always talking about God. They don't just quote the scriptures. They, they respond. They live in light of the gospel. Now, people follow people for various reasons, but Christians are to follow people because those people help them follow Christ. Yes, you're going to have people in work that you kind of imitate and model, people that are really good at a trade, maybe that you're an apprentice in, people that are really intelligent that you're going to learn from, but I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about who you should imitate your life after. Well, people pick people for various reasons, but who are you following Christian and why? Who are you imitating and walking like? I mean, who are you really following? Really following? Some politician because you like their political stances? An athlete because they throw a ball really fast or really far? A musician, actor, or actress because they are attractive, rich, or popular? Friends, I'm confident that Paul would not have fit in with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And we know Christ wouldn't have either. I don't think that he would have impressed anyone with his bench press. His book, when he was alive, really God's book, was not a bestseller. God has kind of redeemed that. The greatest book, the, the, the bestseller of all time, the Bible, big chunk of the, the New Testament written by Paul. But he was certainly not the most popular, in the positive sense, man when he was alive. 
And yet Paul and those like him are the types of people that Christians are to follow. And that's why we really need to be careful about the celebrity Christians. The, the, the sports guy or the actor, the musician, who we say, oh, he's come to Christ all of a sudden. And then we go to him and we just want to hear what he has to say. No, he's a baby or a, she's a baby Christian. Maybe, maybe not. Go to the ones who are, who are faithfully pursuing Christ, who, who have the marks of those that you should imitate. People who get the gospel right. People who are living for Christ. People whose joy is in the Lord. Through Paul, God has given us in this passage help so that we would pick the right people to follow. Children, you know who some of those people are? Your parents. Your parents. I know you don't, no, I don't want to be like them. They're not cool. Oh, oh, young person, if you have a Christian parent, you are so blessed. Start looking at them. You know, maybe don't dress the way they dress. Don't walk the way they walk. I have a slight pigeon toe in my walk. (laughs) I would encourage my children not to have that. (laughs) But I hope, as far as I follow Christ, my boys follow Christ. And they want to be like their dad. If you don't have a Christian parent, find a spiritual father or mother that you can look up to and imitate. Model your life at you. Again, you don't need to look like them as far as how they, they dress, words that they use, but, but find them. Pursue them. God has given you a gift if you're a Christian. It's called the church, and that's where they should be. If you don't have them, they're here, right here. You don't have to look out there. You don't have to go get the next bestseller. You probably shouldn't. Some of them are okay, but many of them are not. Look here. Spend time here. Get into a community group. Go to the men's study, the women's study. Go to youth group where you can find a youth director, a youth leader, like that young boy found in me, and I was crazy. But God blessed it. Find the right type of people. You know what? They're probably not going to be popular. Your friends who are not following Christ won't think they're cool, but they will serve you well. They will help you follow Christ. And here's the thing, kind of a, a full circle ending point. Christian, if you are really following the right type of person, not just in thought, not just in word, but in life, you're walking as they walk, well, you'll be someone that others should follow as well. And that's how discipleship works, isn't it? He's made it really simple. Follow people who are following Christ, and you will be somebody that others should follow. And now you're part of the Great Commission. You follow someone as they follow Christ, and others follow you as you follow Christ. So are you someone that others should follow? Are you leading people towards Christ? Are you following the right type of people? Let's pray and ask God for some help. God, I pray for those hearts that you're stirring right now who are asking some questions, considering some things about their lives. Don't let them let go of that thought. Quickly, it's going to be snatched away. The prayer will end, the songs will end, conversations will begin, and attention will be be shifted and focused to other things. Lord, I pray for those who are pondering these things. Lord, help them to respond to your word in faith and do what you call your people to do. Pick the right people to imitate, to follow, to be like, who are following Jesus. Father, please Help them grow as disciples so that they would be more like Christ and enjoy more of Christ and live the life that you've called them to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.